Is there a cure for autism? And if so, should there be? Today, we discuss the ethical and moral questions surrounding the topic of curing autism. We also share personal and community insights from this ongoing debate. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing Embracing Autism. Autism. Hey, everyone. For those of you watching, as you know, tomorrow is April 1st, and that means that it's the beginning of Autism Acceptance Month. For those of you listening, you'll get this a week later, but as part of Autism Acceptance Month, Matt and I are going to be doing kind of a couple weeks of harder-hitting topics that are more about autism acceptance and awareness. For this episode, we thought it was really important to talk about the concept of curing autism because this is something that's heavily debated among the community, and it's one of the key points for Autism Acceptance Month. I mean, I think it's definitely a a controversial topic, to say the least. So, I mean, I'm sure there's people with uh, opinions on both sides, and I think that both could be potentially valid depending on what their argument is for it, I suppose. This is definitely one of those harder topics to discuss because, as you all know, there is a huge range when it comes to autism. Whether you refer to it as levels of functioning or levels of support needed, however it may be that you refer to it, there is very clearly a variety of autistics and a variety of symptoms. So the debate that's happening right now in the world, honestly, is this idea of whether or not autism is considered like a disease or a disorder or just another way of thinking. There's just so many perspectives and different viewpoints when it comes to what autism is. A lot of people are for making it a medical condition and really thinking of it from that medical model and that medical perspective. There's other people who say that they're against pathologizing it essentially. And so they're against that medical model and they're more for that social model of it just being a different neurotype, a different way of thinking. So we're just going to share a little bit about our perspectives and a little bit about what we've heard from others. I will start off with just saying as somebody who is neurodivergent and has actually had some brain studies done, I've seen my brain and I've worked in neuroscience. I used to work in a neurologist's office. I was an EEG technician. We did things like TMS. We did neurofeedback, EEGs, of course. And so being heavily involved in that area makes me personally lean more towards the medical model of autism because I have actually seen actual scans and brain mappings of people's brains. And you can literally see the physical, physiological differences in their brain structure and the very real outcome that has on their symptoms. Why are you smiling, Matthew? (laughs) Well, I was just going to say it was funny because you were kind of like, I've seen my brain and just kind of like the the literally, I've seen my brain. I know how it works. No, I didn't say literally. Did I say literally? (laughs) No, no, I don't think so. I'm adding it in. Um, but I, I just think it's funny because you're like, I've seen my brain. And it's like, well, yes, I suppose that's true. It just, I don't know. It's not something you hear every day in like a standard like conversation. <laughs> that's true. Not everyone works in a neurologist's office. so <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> that, so that's I, really I, important context. Right. So I was just seeing the the slight humor of it. Of, I've seen my brain. I, I know what it looks like and all that. So um, just. At least there's confirmation but, that I have one. 
There you go. So basically, I tend to lean more towards that medical model because my background is mostly in neuroscience and I did work in medical offices and I worked a lot in both the psychological aspect and the medical aspect. And so because of that background that I've gained, I tend to lean more towards that model of understanding. However, as time has progressed and I have learned more about the social model, I do also appreciate certain aspects of that. So like the neurodiversity movement, I think is really important. I think that that movement is part of spreading that awareness and helping people understand that autism isn't just a medical model. So I feel like there needs to be a middle ground, essentially, when it comes to defining this. It's not 100% just medical. There is a social component. There is the importance of normalizing that sort of neurological difference. I do think there's a good middle ground that we can meet at, but I also don't think that we can just say that it is just a different way of thinking or it's just different brains. I think that there's a lot more to it than that, just neurologically speaking. Yeah, I think it's definitely challenging because of the overlap. So you can't necessarily lump it into either category completely. So therefore, you can't necessarily discredit either side completely. You're kind of stuck with kind of the good and the bad. Obviously, I'm not autistic, so I can't speak in regards to that for like myself. But I'm I'm thinking of like my ADHD and uh, as far as my dyslexia, I mostly see the negative challenges that I have that I have to try and overcome to try and just basically hit the the normal um, average person when reading, for example. I have to work extremely hard with reading. I guess if there was a way to try and like improve that, I would be more open to trying to do something like that. But then again, that would also kind of take away a little bit of who I am. And it might sound weird, but I I feel like I've developed a personality based off of my disabilities. So because I struggled with dyslexia and ADHD, I needed a sense of humor. I needed to be crazy sometimes and just kind of say whatever. And that kind of forced me out of my shell a little bit. So I don't want them necessarily to go away completely because I feel like then I would lose a piece of myself as like what created who I am today. But I feel like sometimes with the struggles and challenges, it would be helpful just to be able to read a paragraph without having to like try and focus on each individual word because I stumble and mix up the whole phrasing. So I don't know. It's definitely a challenging area and I'm not really sure what your take is on Leah or how you perceive it. It kind of varies, but I think number one, at the end of the day, it really should all depend on that individual because at the end of the day, everybody has a right to their own decision and what they feel is right for themselves. So this is just like my personal opinion. For me, when it comes to this idea of curing autism, first of all, just to nip it in the bud, there is no known cure for autism right now because autism isn't even really considered something that's curable in the sense that it's not a disease. So it's a disability. And so you can't cure disabilities. Just want to say that. But let's say that there are certain aspects of it that you can treat that you can certainly do. There's things like I mentioned, like TMS treatment, neurofeedback treatment. And I have actually seen those treatments positively impact and reverse a lot of symptoms in some of my patients who struggled with like severe ADHD or they had neurological pain, migraines, things like that. I have actually seen it work and reverse that. 
there are certain aspects of my autism that I would certainly love to see cured because they're debilitating. My executive dysfunction, for example. There's no part of my executive dysfunction I would want to keep. Literally none of it. None of it is helpful. <laughs> why, why are you laughing again? Well, I was just thinking, so you don't you don't want to keep the struggle with us trying to figure out like where we're going to go to eat or like what we're going to eat on any particular day. That's not an enjoyable All the like choice, choice anxiety. <laughs> Uh, and the losing my things a hundred thousand times a day where I've literally had to Velcro my stuff to walls. I have to have like a watch strapped onto me. Executive dysfunction is a part of autism and ADHD and it's a common comorbidity. And I would a hundred percent love to cure that a hundred percent if I could, because there's nothing good that comes out of it. It basically just causes a lot of stress and anxiety on my day to day basis. It causes me to slow things down. It causes me to lose important things, forget important things. And there's honestly no aspect of it that is redeemable in my eyes personally for me autism holistically, I do actually love certain aspects of it that I would not want to change. My ability to kind of see things more clearly in a haze, a lot of neurotypicals in high stress moments, what happens is they get overcome by emotion. Let's say there's a house fire, for example. Everybody's so busy freaking out about the house fire that there's nobody who has their head on straight and is like, okay, you do this, you do that. This is the plan. We're going to execute it because everybody's so emotionally really on edge. Because of my autism, I don't tend to have those emotional associations to things that happen in life. I tend to see things very like stoically and logically because of that. When there is a high stress or emergency situation, I tend to be the leader in that situation. I tend to be the one who kind of rises out of the ashes and starts saying like, okay, we got to do this. We got to do that. And I can see very clearly where everyone else is still looking through that haze. And so for me, that's something that I actually really love about my autism that I would never want to change because I think it's a good skill to have. I like how you are the mythological phoenix in your analogy. Where I didn't say phoenix. You said you're rising from the ashes, which implies... Well, I was talking about fire. Well, <laughs> a literal well, fire. I, I, su- I suppose I'm so. I'm autistic. But, it's well, not a you, metaphor. <laughs> well, you're talking about fire, ashes. Are you burning in the fire and then being reborn? Yeah, a house fire. No, a house <laughs> fire, like going through the fog. See, see, oh, this, is, this okay. is that neurotypical autistic conversation misconception here. Okay. I'm talking very literal. I mean, a literal fire, literal ashes. Well, that's that's what I figured. But when you said reborn for the ashes, I was thinking like a mythological, like Phoenix, like <laughs> you're hilarious. Being no, that is definitely not ashes. it. So more philosophical, I suppose. Yeah, I'm literal. I am just super literal. And so basically, that's how I see that part of it, where I think that there is definitely, definitely redeemable, awesome parts of autism. Some people don't like to say that. There's some people who think that autism is basically all bad. There's people who say that autism is all good. And I don't honestly think either of those are true. I think that there's aspects of autism that are really great. I see it in my kids. I think my uh, kids' ability to teach themselves to read on their own at two is amazing. The ability to absorb knowledge like a sponge is crazy to me because I am not that type of autistic. I struggle a lot with processing. So I think it's just a matter of perspective when it comes to those things. But there's certainly aspects of it that I would love to take away from my kid. Like, I would love to take away their elopement risk. There's nothing good about elopement. Elopement is 
just purely dangerous. So that's something I would want if there was a cure to the elopement aspect. If somebody said, hey, if you give your kid these gummies, they will no longer elope. I would absolutely give them those gummies. No questions asked. And I'm sure if we were to ask our children, I mean, if they were older and able to understand the conversation, I'm sure as far as like the sensory overload, meltdowns and such, I feel like that is another struggle that most likely I'm assuming is not enjoyable because of basically their reaction where it's basically their world kind of crashing. So I don't necessarily see that as a enjoyable trait. So I'm sure if they had the option to try and minimize that as much as possible, I'm sure they would agree to that as well. But I I feel like it's kind of like can't really take away the good with the bad. I mean, of course, this is all in magical land where you're able to kind of like wave a wand. Right. (laughs) I like how you use. Yeah. Instead of magical land. (laughs) (laughs) Phoenixes, magical land. Uh, Someone watched Lord of the Rings before this episode. Yeah, but I agree because like another another aspect of it for me that I would personally love to cure if I could, especially for my kids because I want to protect them, is where your social relationships just completely suffer. My biggest challenge in life has been maintaining friendships and having a friend. The last time I had a best friend, I was probably five or six years old and I've never been able to regain that since. And that is a part of my life that's had a very devastating impact. That's something that to this day still hurts me and is something that I still carry and feel like will essentially have to forever carry. That to me is so debilitating that I would definitely, definitely be like, yeah, where's the magic wand for that? Please fix that part because that's not, again, something that anyone really wants. There are people who are totally happy and content with that. I do know some autistics that are just like they don't really crave that social interaction or ability. So they don't they don't really mind. That's not a problem for them. And that's fine. But like for me personally, that's absolutely something that I would want to cure if I could. Some of the ethical moral dilemma around that, though, is the ideas that kind of start forming from the concept of curing. When people start viewing autism in the lens of something that can be cured, that also starts to create this viewpoint of autism being a disease when it is, in fact, not a disease. And then you get all the problems that surround that. You might get down that kind of like eugenics path or you might get down that like darker path of like going in reverse when it comes to disability rights and advancements. It also runs the risk of going counterintuitive to kind of the concept of obviously embracing autism, but basically acceptance of autism. Because if you see something as, okay, we need to cure that, that needs to be resolved. We have to find a way to fix it. Then you're not really embracing necessarily that person. You're trying to fix that person to be something else. So it kind of does go in like a weird way where it is almost like you're turning your back on accepting them into the community and pointing a figure and saying like, let's find how to fix that. So it does have kind of a weird take on, I mean, at least how I'm perceiving that statement. I don't know. It just seems kind of like a weird connotation a little bit. That's why this is so heavily debated because there are pros and cons. There's good on one side, bad on the other and vice versa. I can empathize with both sides of the argument. 
from my experience, I really do feel like I would be 100% for being able to treat certain aspects. Like, for example, I've considered and will likely pursue in the future TMS or neurofeedback for certain aspects. So, for example, if I'm able to isolate in my brain the neurological pathway that is causing my executive dysfunction or causing my inattentiveness, I have no problem being like, okay, well, you can see in a brain map that very clearly that part of my brain is either overactive or underactive and therefore causing these symptoms. So I'm just going to treat it through that neurofeedback process or TMS process to regulate it to normal levels. And I don't see anything wrong with that. You're basically treating the brain the way you would with your body. Like if you had a heart arrhythmia and your heart was beating irregularly, you'd get a pacemaker. You do something to treat that to get your heart to beat the proper way because that increases your quality of life. And your brain is no different. If your brain is not firing its neurons properly and there's a way for you to be able to essentially reboot that system so that it can fire properly, that's no different really to me than getting a pacemaker for your heart. Yeah, I mean, that I mean, seems fair. I mean, there's various modifications that people make for better quality of life. So if that would add more benefit or improve your quality of life, I don't think it would be anything for anyone to kind of say like, oh, no, no, you can't do that because by you doing that, you are destroying the old Leah in order to replace her with a new and improved Leah. I'm not really sure if that really stands. <laughs> You better not replace me with a new and improved Leah. I'm going to have issues well, with that. Well, no, I'm saying like with the like recharting or whatever. So yeah, like, I know. I'm messing like with you. <laughs> Leah 2.0 or whatever you want to like call it. But I agree if, if, if there's something that would be beneficial to try, what's the harm in trying essentially? Yeah. So I personally don't have any problem with that. The things I have more problem with are things that end up putting more pressure on the autistic individual. So it's not really like curative. It's more like masking things. Whenever you're giving somebody some sort of treatment, like let's say it's some sort of like talk therapy or something like that, where you're basically trying to encourage that person to mask in order to fit in. I've heard stories of how somebody is autistic and they've been autistic basically their whole lives and their parent puts them through these therapies. And then by the time they're 21 or 22, they quote unquote fall off the spectrum and are no longer autistic. And then the parent goes around sending stories about how, oh, how my son was cured. And so those I get kind of frustrated about because the way I see it is there's like two things that must have happened. One of those is your son was never really autistic to begin with. They could have had other symptoms that mimicked autism, which does happen. There's environmental conditions that can happen that mimic autism, but aren't actually autism, true autism. And so those can be cured. One of the ones that I've seen, somebody had reached out and told me about how her son had all these symptoms of autism. And for years, they couldn't figure it out. They had the meltdowns, all that. And then it turned out later in life, she was able to figure out that it was actually due to a infection that she had had when she was pregnant from a tick that she had gotten a tick bite that caused some sort of disease. It wasn't Lyme disease, but something like that. And it ended up infecting her baby in utero. And then her following children also got infected in utero because she forever has this in her system now. So every time she's pregnant, it passes on to her kids. So because of that, those kids presented as autistic children and they passed all those developmental markers for autism because it has to be present in childhood for it to count as autism. 
But once they discovered that it was due to a tick bite, they were actually able to find a antidote to that because the tick bite was actually reversible. What, whatever it released into her bloodstream was reversible. And so when they gave them that antidote, then all of their autistic symptoms reversed and they no longer were considered autistic and they quote unquote fell off the spectrum. So like to me, personally, when I see those stories, I don't really count those as true autism because that's something different in my book because it wasn't caused through like genetics. It was caused through some sort of environmental factor that can be reversed. And I don't think we should mix those. That story in itself sounds like a insane outlier of the general population. I mean, that's a crazy story. First off, you were able to find out that it was a tick that caused all of that and then be able to reverse it as well. Yeah, that's a crazy outlier of a situation. That's an insane story. Yeah, but there are other stories like that that are those environmental causes of autism. I'm sure everybody has seen floating around the internet the Tylenol one. That one drives me nuts, mostly because I have yet to find any solid scientific evidence to support that argument, but they're really pushing it hard on social media. They've even reached out to us. <laughs> but um, I think that for me, the important aspect of that is whether or not you feel like you're separating yourself from yourself, essentially. Like if curing autism means that you are no longer you, then I would be against it. But if the cure, quote unquote, of whatever it is that you are trying to cure, like my executive dysfunction, or let's say if it was just something as simple as forgetfulness or something like that, that really impacts your quality of life. Then in that sense, I'm I'm supporting that. I'm okay with that because I would still remain me. I would just be me who is less forgetful forgetful and less losing my things. And yeah, I would just be a more responsible version of myself. It's like anytime you'd want to use your phone, you would have it right there. But yeah, I mean, um, I agree. I mean, I think that's a, a valid argument. If you lose yourself in the process, then I feel like that's taking a little too much because then you're no longer the same person. But again, if you're able to modify individual qualities to improve your quality of life, why wouldn't you? But at the same time, it would need to be something where it's not necessarily like there's no like pain being inflicted to basically like change that aspect. I mostly think of like the masking component where it looks like you're changing your mindset or your behavior, but it's basically just like you're holding onto it and you're just kind of burying it beneath the surface. So as long as it's not like something that's going to cause anxiety or additional stress in the situation as well, I mean, obviously it would be better to avoid that altogether. And I think it's kind of like a subjective call because who is your true self? A parent is not really going to know who their true child is. The child would know that better as they get older. And so like for me personally, I would want to wait till my kids are a little bit older so that they can at least give me a little bit of feedback as to whether or not they want to pursue neurofeedback or TMS or something like that. I wouldn't necessarily do that while they're very young and have no idea because who knows, maybe that is something that they want to keep. Like maybe that is something that they're proud of. If I was crazy and I wanted my executive dysfunction as a kid, I would have want to keep it. But I think that when it comes to certain things, I think about it just like you would with any other medical decision when it comes to a child. Typically, we don't allow our children to make decisions on whether or not they're going to take Tylenol for their fever. That's where that gray area comes in. That's where that debate and that morality question comes in that we can't answer for you guys because everybody has a different moral compass. So it's really some 
internal dialogue that has to happen, some really hard-hitting conversations that you have to have with the other parent involved or whoever the caregiver is for that child, and figure out where your boundaries are when it comes to providing your kid access to these sorts of, not cures, because there isn't really a cure, but treatments. Another one that I have heard of that I had a friend who had an autistic child, she pursued this. They don't do it in the United States, so she went to the UK, but they now have like fecal transplants. It's exactly what it sounds like. They take fecal matter and they basically transplant it into the child's intestinal system because there has been a lot of research recently that has really showed the connection between your gut and your brain. They've found like they can prevent certain types of Parkinson's and things like that just by evaluating and kind of messing around with your gut health. That's something that now is being explored for autism. And there is some research coming out saying that these fecal transplants essentially are alleviating symptoms in certain cases. But again, that's one of those things where it depends on what type of autism you have. That's like the tick bite example, where in that case, it was the tick bite that caused it. And so the research so far is indicating that not everyone's autism stems from a gut brain connection issue. So that's why I feel like it's very case by case. And I think that that just needs to be a personal decision for every family to make. Not to mention, it seems like the research for autism doesn't seem to really be there. It seems like there's still a lot unknown. I mean, we're still seeing a ton of studies that kind of pop up left and right where I think they increase the uh, the number of GAN about uh, as far as like the diagnosis because, I mean, now they're, I mean, opening the net a little bit as far as uh, being able to diagnose. But I mean, it still seems like they're still trying to figure out as far as like the genetics and how it kind of is passed down and just the different components of it. And I definitely think it is, I mean, a very interesting topic. And I mean, I feel like there's so much to learn that we have no clue on. We also have to wait or try and focus on more research as it kind of progresses through the years, because we might find out in 10 years something drastically different than we know today. And that could, I mean, alter our current perception of what autism even is. Now, there are certain types of treatments that I wouldn't really pursue. One of them that is highly controversial and has been banned in a lot of states is shock therapy. Shock therapy is not something that is really looked at highly. It has a really kind of dark past, and I personally wouldn't pursue that. However, TMS, I believe it stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation, is kind of like the grand daughter of shock therapy, which is honestly for me an okay thing because it's not at all like shock therapy. It's basically a very, very, very low grade stimulus that is done magnetically. Transcranial means through your head. And so it's a transcranial magnetic neurological stimulator, basically. And it's, again, kind of like the concept of a pacemaker where the pacemaker kind of shocks your heart into rhythm. You could call that shock therapy. I mean, honestly, that's what it is. But it's used for medical purposes. The original shock therapy that people talk about when they're saying or referring to shock therapy, that's that kind of unethical one that's been done in the past. TMS is not like that. I was a TMS technician. I did TMS on myself to practice. And you can't even feel anything at all. Some people reported feeling something, but what they felt was, I'm not even going to lie, they felt like they were high. And so some people were like really into it. Um, but for me personally, I, I didn't feel anything at all when I did it on myself. The concept of TMS, what it is, is basically your neural pathways are really set in their ways. 
And so the TMS kind of is a little bit of a boost to get them to reset the pathway that they're taking in your brain in layman's terms. That's a very basic way of putting it. It's very specifically targeted. You'll have like an EEG done where they do a brain map and try to find out which parts of your brain are overacting or underacting. And then the placement of those magnetics is going to be very specific to what part of your brain is affected. That's where you'll go into treatment. You just sit with like a little cap on for like 20 minutes or an hour, depending on your treatment plan. And you can just sit there and like play video games or do whatever you want, read a book, chill while they do that. And they'll do a before and after brain map. And you can see the physiological differences in your brain after the treatment. It's usually a couple weeks before you'll see the difference. But there's literally a difference in how your brain is functioning before and after in that you can actually improve those areas. That's the route that I personally would pursue for myself in the future if I do ultimately end up pursuing anything. Yeah, no, I haven't heard much of anything on that, but um, I could probably go for some as well. For ADHD, yes, because it works yeah. for that too. But this <laughs> yeah. is but this is not a cure. TMS is not a cure. Neurofeedback is not a cure. I would see those as an alleviation of symptoms, whatever symptoms you would consider to be most problematic basically for you. So it's more of a therapy because it's something that doesn't have permanent results. It can be long-ish lasting, but you typically will have to go back for a refresher over time. So let's say you did it and you didn't like what it did, which I've never had a patient say that, but let's say that you did, it would eventually fade. So you would have to maintain it to keep those effects going. At least when I did it, things could have changed by now, but at least when I used to do it, that was the case. We have to start wrapping up. So before I do, this is Autism Acceptance Month. I just want to let you know to not forget to join us on YouTube for our Autism Accepted Month live panel. This year, we're going to start a new thing. And in honor of Autism Acceptance Month, we're going to be hosting our first ever Autism Acceptance Month panel discussion. This panel will meet live on April 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern on YouTube and Facebook. And it's going to be comprised of a diverse group of individuals in the autism community, including autistic adults, clinicians, BCBAs, and even some parents. Our hope is that this will help bring a well-rounded discussion from a variety of perspectives because that's important to us to not have like one biased lens. So it will have a variety of perspectives. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at Autism Wish and also hit that notification bell so that you'll get your reminder of when it airs. If you're listening to the audio version of this, just go back to youtube.com slash wish to catch that video. Another thing that I want to share with you guys, this is a special promo. Angel Sense, they have a GPS tracker device that will help you keep track of your child in case they are an elopement risk. We have one. It's been a lifesaver for us. And for the month, Autism Acceptance Month, so the month of April, they are actually offering a free AngelSense GPS tracker. You still will have to pay for the plan, but the tracker, which is worth about $200, is free for the month of April. So I just wanted to share that out with you guys. And if you are interested, check out the link in the description. And there is a special link there that will also help support Autism Wish. So it'll be a double Autism Acceptance Month whammy. You'll get a free GPS tracker and you'll be able to give to an autism charity at the same time. With that said, I hope you guys learned a lot in this episode. And I'm curious, what do you guys think? What is your stance when it comes to curing autism? Let us know in the comments on our YouTube channel or at Facebook. That's good, too. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. 
This has been the audio from the Embracing Autism podcast live stream series. Please check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Autism Wish to catch these shows live. Otherwise, stick around next week for our next episode. This is Embracing Autism.